it's uh, interesting that um, Buddha's teaching of the Buddha on loving kindness, um, which is this is like the the, the classic text um, from the Pali scriptures, the Theravada scriptures on the uh, the practice of kindness. It's significant that the uh, the last four lines of it, um, as you might have noticed, moves into quite a, a different mode. Um, the first larger part of it is, is talking very clearly about uh, having this uh, undiscriminating, uh, abounding uh, benevolence towards other beings, uh, the mother as the only child. Uh, and then suddenly there's this, um, it shifts into a different mode by not holding six views if you're hardly one and in clarity of vision being free from all sense desires is not born again into this world but sometimes those people are sort of surprised by that like, oh I thought you were talking about kindness you know? <laughs> what, happened, uh, what happened here and so uh, it's, it's interesting I think mean, helpful to reflect that the in a way, it's, rep- it's representing the fact that the culmination of our kindness is in this, um, uh, or the culmination of that uh, benevolent attitude, the fruition of that, is in the, the dawning of, of wisdom, of the true insight, and the quality of um, the heart breaking free from the, the cycles of, of rebirth, cycles of birth and death, or the... Uh, freedom from psychic existence. Different expressions of the teaching talk about it in different ways. And so that uh, this is really the, um, in a way, the, the, the crucial piece of, uh, um, of the practice where the Buddha would say, like, uh, the sublime abiding, the Brahma Vihara, so these are, these are Pure states, these are beautiful states, these are wholesome states, but they are not transcendent. They are they are present abiding, but they are not uh, the unconditioned. They are, they are still within the realm of the, the conditioned and formed and, and the created. So they are you know, as good as you can get. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have an abiding place, they're as, they're as good an abiding as you can get. And so live somewhere. And this is a good uh, abiding in the, in the conditioned realm. This is a uh, noble and as, as beautiful a mind state as one can uh, establish, but these are still states. They still they, they come and go and change. And so then uh, it's, it's pointing to the the Brahma Viharas or these blind states of mind as a sort of launch pad or the sort of setting off point from there into the to the realization of the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated, the, the transcendent element. Um, and that's really where the, wi- the teachings on wisdom, the wisdom teachings come in, the insight teachings. It's like that, um, having established a heart which is you know, very wholesome and radiant and bright and, and able to harmonize with other beings, then there's a, that, that's not the whole story. Uh, that's not uh, even that beautiful and wholesome. It's not the, the goal of, of the efforts and of spiritual practice. But um, having in a way, sort of having fixed your house up, having you know, got all the furniture in place, having sort of got everything as you like it, now, now you're going to live in it. <laughs> so that the insight, or the, the liberating insight, is really that's like, you're, you're making use 
of this uh, beautiful uh, abiding space um, uh, for the, the most um, wholesome purpose. So that, that uh, and you know, maybe using the language of breaking free from the cycles of birth and death, is not the sort of thing that we kind of get every day through the newspaper. Or, in everyday language, you know, in amongst ourselves, unless we are hanging out in the Buddhist center. It's not our normal everyday parlance. But it's, it's talking about qualities that are familiar to all of us. Um, the habit of it, cycles of habit, you know, or the uh, cycles of uh, addiction, uh, obsession, compulsion, these are more sort of present-day psychological language, but it's referring to exactly the same thing of gratification um, uh, and then uh, disappointment and then uh, the state of lack or hunger or the state of uh, craving and then gratification and then disappointment (laughs) and then hunger and uh, thirsting, and then gratification, <laughs> so on and so forth. You know, we can probably all name our PTSD with addiction. You know, things that we have been uh, matched together with, or still are, you know, and different choices over the years, different things that we've been uh, obsessive about or addicted to. But uh, this is a, a universal human quality that sense of looking for satisfaction, looking for completion. And again, it doesn't, when we say addiction, it doesn't mean to say kind of using needles and heroin. It can also be addiction to people's approval. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be a, you know, addiction to being seen as a good person. It can be a, you know, uh, a, um, uh, or being compulsively uh, active. The, uh, when I was at a, a, a um, conference with the Dalai Lama at, at MIT earlier this year in September, an extremely lugubrious, very tall and, and um, serious uh, psychologist from uh, Ann Arbor in the University of Michigan, um, uh, was, he was speaking on this particular panel discussion was on attention and cognitive control. And, and uh, with a completely straight face, he, he said that um, he's called uh, David Mayer. Well, I think the main, one of the main problems that we have today is that everyone is mad. Everyone is suffering from mad. M A D. And it's a half the people on the panel, most people in the audience are M A D. By that I mean multitasking addictive disorder. (laughs) (laughs) And without without cracking even half a smiley tooth, and furthermore, associated with being mad, there is the problem of uh, cold. People are cold. 
constantly online disorder. It was written to like 1,100 scientists. It already uh, it was a considerable empathy with his point. Also, there's a lot of self-justification immediately that forward. So, um, whether we're constantly online, or whether we're addicted to multitasking, or whether we are um, addicted to more simple things like you know, tea and coffee and cigarettes and chocolate cake and heroin. Hang your drugs. There's a very funny story about Lenny Bruce being invited to, um, to the Cambridge um, University um, with amateur comedy called the Cambridge Footlights Review and they invited Lenny Bruce, a sort of famous radical comedian over from, from New York and, and so uh, Peter Cook, who's a you know, very famous British comedian, was, in, was one of the Cambridge undergraduates you know, and uh, welcomed Lenny Bruce off the play and said, oh, I'm so happy to have you in, Bruce, this is really good, I'm really very excited here at Cambridge, you know, and it's a very important event for us, and, you know, what is here, you know, what is you know, what is here, you know, what is here, you know, got any heroin? So then, and Peter Cook gave us this hilarious account of going to his, I said, well, actually, I'm, you know, I think, he went to his friend Dudley Moore, <laughs> who was a, a musician who was actually doing a music scholarship at Balliol College, Oxford. Our food friend Dudley Moore, well, he's a musician, he might know they use drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of, so he went to Dudley, Dudley Moore and said,
So whether we have a name for that or not, it's kind of beside the point because the main issue is to realize that what we call it is, is secondary. <coughs> we call it anything at all. So that's really the framework for, for insight meditation. And um, in, uh, in one very well-known teaching that you, you get in, quoted in, in Augustine, Buddhist lineages, um, Buddha said that the, uh, the mind's intrinsic nature is, is radiant, is bright, um, but it, that brightness becomes uh, occluded by the, um, the confusion, the defilement, the habit that uh, arise within us. And so that, um, in, you know, very briefly, it says that, that the purpose of, of meditation and, and the development of, of insight, so called, is learning to uh, live in such a way and cultivate such sort of attitudes that whereby we're no longer contributing to all the stuff that's uh, accruing, that's covering over that, that fundamental brightness. Uh, now our common attitude in the West is that the underneath it all, I'm this kind of rotten thing. <laughs> when you get right down to it, I'm really a kind of slug. You know, so that, uh, you know, where I really belong is so down in the in the in the future you know, slug at the bottom of the pond. The Freud even used this phrase that the black tide of referring to the is the um, the, the you know, sort of basic level of, of uh, human mentality that he referred to it as the black tide of mud. So you can think, well, right underneath, you know, we've got these few sort of neocortex, um, super-ego type functions that sort of gloss things over on the top and make things look a bit pretty, but right down underneath, basically, there's a kind of fetid monster you know, rocking in the basement. And even though we might not think of it in those ways, and I'm kind of over-dramatizing it a bit, we, we can easily get that impression that and basically there's this kind of uh, nastiness or this sort of um, uh, rottenness or this kind of um, coarse, fearful, passionate uh, and pained quality to write down the bottom of our being because often it seems that when we, we look at ourselves, we look at our minds, that's what we find. Conflict, some kind of stress, and some kind of pain, some sort of resentment or alienation with these different things. So this, uh, the, the model that the, the Buddha suggested, and hopefully uh, um, spend uh, the rest of the day together, is something that, you know, for, and, and hopefully you know, at least people experience with some degree before, is that through the meditation we begin to shift the perspective a little, thinking rather than there being this, this, you know, the, the fetid sludge with these sort of occasional little lotus blossoms that rise up out of it. <laughs> and at the, ba- the big basic ground is this sort of nastiness. Is that, uh, you know, actually that we've got the figure on the ground the wrong way around. Uh, rather like one of those Escher paintings. Or etchings right there. But uh, what we initially think of as being the foreground, we suddenly realize, oh no, that's not the foreground, that's the background. And that it's actually the, the brightness um, the, the little spots of, of um, brightness are not just uh, the, the isolated aberrations that um, are planted on top of, uh, of the um, basic um, kind of un- unwholesomeness of the mind, but actually that, uh, that brightness 
is the ground. That's uh, the fundamental nature of the mind is, is already perfectly pure. Uh, bright, clear, wide, uh, awake, and that it's the uh, you know, sludge, <laughs> like the you know the layers of, of sludge that uh, uh, develop over the the, uh, the millennia, <laughs> and uh, have have covered over that that natural sight. So that uh, you know we can take this as an article of faith if we like, but it's more important and more helpful if, if in the course of the meditation we begin to to notice this ourselves. But in those moments, and already you know just this, this morning and, and in our practice you know, um, before this time, we probably noticed that in that moment when we we recognise that, that there's clinging going on, the mind is caught up. When we recognise that clinging and we let go, then in that moment, what happens? There's like, in that, in that moment, even if it's just a half a second before the, you know, the, the black tide of mud flows <laughs> 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 in again. But uh, there's, uh, in that moment when, when the heart is not clinging, when there's, when there's, when there's uh, no confusion, no peacefulness, there's clarity, there's stillness, and also no sense of self. Just when there's that, before even the sort of, right, now where was I? I was meditating. <laughs> <laughs> just in that, that, that initial relaxation, everything is fine, yeah. and that uh, yeah. we can see this for ourselves, and so that this then this experience or, or seeing that for ourselves over and over, that when there's no clinging, then what's present? We see that that uh, there's this purity, peacefulness, brightness, simplicity. Everything is is fine. Um, so that that becomes. Uh, an experience which informs us, it kind of guides us to, to reconfigure the way we, we think of ourselves, but even despite all evidence to the contrary, perhaps <laughs> down at the bottom of the whole thing, there's pure Arabian qualities, Portland's very good place of speaking, I say, so it's a cloud of weather. So that no matter how, you know, coming from England, where you can you know, not see the sun for it. Most of the time, um, but uh, despite all appearances to the contrary, you know, sometimes that little sort of brighter patch of cloud actually cracks open. Oh look, yeah. it was there all the time. We just couldn't see it because of the, the clouds covering it up. So uh, that begins to work on on us, and um, we begin to develop confidence. Despite, you know, no matter how long the clouds have been there, it's just still, the, the, the clouds don't remove the sun. The sun is still doing its thing like a few million miles away. It's just that the layers of clouds stop it from being perceived. Uh, 